verses 17 through 26. The title of this message, if you're taking notes, is Taking Sin Seriously. Taking Sin Seriously. Matthew chapter 5, if you need help, don't be afraid to ask a neighbor. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Last time, we studied about being salt and light in the world. And we talked about our forgotten function, that a lot of us as Christians, followers of Jesus, we forget what we're actually supposed to do in the world, how we're supposed to act. And so we come to passages like the one we looked at last time, and we're able to see that salt should have an effect in the world. Light should have an effect against the darkness. And so tonight, we're moving into a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, let's read verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will, be, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this evening as we talk about sin, as we talk about accountability, and walking in a way that that pleases you. We pray that you give us instruction, that we walk away with some practical things, but ultimately we want our hearts transformed from the inside out. So pray you do your work by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a good question. And this is a popular question, a relevant question for our day and age. Does God care about what you believe and how you behave? Does God care about what you believe and how you behave? Now, different people answer that question differently depending on your religion, your upbringing, your worldview. But what we see in the Bible is that God actually does care what you believe and how you behave. 
We'll prove it to you in a little bit. I just watched a documentary this past week about a pastor, or formerly known as a pastor, but he's constantly deemed a person who is a false teacher, and that's because he preaches this message of love. And then you think, wait a minute, if it's a message of love, how is he a false teacher? Well, he essentially says, God does not care what you believe or how you behave. Yes, Jesus is the way to heaven, but there's many ways to Jesus. And so he uses all kinds of scripture, different verses in the Bible, to back up what he says. And a lot of people believe that he's right. There's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as judgment, that God's love is so great and so encompassing that he died for all people and his love and his salvation is extended to all people, including people that have not even heard of Jesus or believe in Jesus. This is what he says. And a lot of people believe this because there's nothing offensive about that, right? Who wouldn't want that kind of worldview, that kind of religion? Well, first of all, probably most other religions would not want that religion and say, oh, by the way, Jesus died for you even though you're Hindu, you don't believe in Jesus, you're still getting to heaven by Jesus. Well, what if you don't believe in Jesus, right? So this is kind of a popular worldview in today. It's, it's fancy, it's easy to listen to, and when you hear him talk, you're like, wow, that guy has a powerful message to share with the world. I watched another um, video on YouTube this past week of a girl who's living a certain lifestyle. She goes to church and uh, talking about how much she loves going to church and whatever, and so the person who's interviewing her asks her, well, what do you do when you come across certain verses in the Bible that confront your lifestyle? She says, yeah, you know what? I just skip over those verses. And then she laughs. Ha ha. Is that how we approach the Bible? And you're like, ah, well, I know it's, yeah, yeah it does say that, but uh, you just kind of pick and choose what you want and believe in what you want to believe in. Is that how we should approach the Bible? Well, it would seem that Jesus says right here that we are actually supposed to fulfill, we are supposed to do what God asks us to do. Now, on the opposite side, in the time of Jesus' day, when he's speaking the Sermon on the Mount, you have these people called the Pharisees, which, as you know, are religious leaders who came up with 613 other commandments that they have to obey. The whole point is, if you know that sin is like jumping off of a cliff, it's dangerous, why not build a fence far away from the cliff so that you never go over the cliff? The point is, if you set up these hedges, these rules to keep you from sinning, even if you go over the fence, over the hedge, you don't go over the cliff. That's why they made all of these rules on top of the rules that they had in God's word. But listen, Jesus did not say in the first verse that we read tonight that he came to enforce the law. What does he say? He says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You see, when Jesus came on the earth 2,000 years ago, the point was not to point the finger at everybody and condemn the world, but to save it. And he did this himself. But that does not mean that the law is not important. 
That doesn't mean that the rules aren't important. The commandments that God has given us in his word. This is why he says in verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, those two words you can probably, you're smart enough, figure out what he's talking about is those minuscule things, even those things that seem insignificant are still important. What's written down? Now, actually, the word jot in Hebrew is the word yod. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And he also talks about a tittle, which is a stroke in the letter. So if you're writing the Hebrew alphabet, you can differentiate between different letters through little whatever, whatever you want to call them. Just like we have serifs. If you don't know what serif is, you can take a typography class. That's kind of the idea. And he says, even that little serif, that little tittle, that little jot, if that, that one thing will still have to be fulfilled. Now, according to rabbis, they would say about different um, verses in, in God's word, they would say about the yods. They said that it was so important that God wrote his word in such a way that even the tiniest yod would always be fulfilled. And Jesus is just referring to that right here. There's actually a tradition that said, so um, remember the story of Sarai and Abram? Their names were changed to Sarah and Abraham in the Old Testament. There was a rabbi who actually said that the yod was taken away from Sarai. That's what that little letter is. But it was given to Heshua to become Joshua, become eventually Jesus. So the whole point, and it's not necessarily true, but the whole point in, in rabbinical thinking was that God doesn't take anything away and doesn't place it somewhere else. That every single letter, even the smallest of letters in God's word, will fulfill its purpose. This is just uh, tradition, and this is teaching that was common in the understanding of the Jewish mind. And what Jesus is going back to is saying, no, listen, don't think that I've come to get rid of the law. And that's what Christians want. Christians want to live their lives however they want to live. People want to live their lives however they want to live. Forget about it. I'm going to do my own thing. But Jesus says it's important. And every one of it still has to be fulfilled, except here's the thing. Jesus himself decided to fulfill it. He goes on to say in verse 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we look at that verse and we say, yeah, I hate Pharisees, they're terrible people, whatever. But in those days, everyone wanted to be like a Pharisee because they were, they, were so, um, they were so serious about fulfilling the smallest of details of their own commandments. They washed their hands a billion times, they washed their body a billion times, washed cups, they washed everything. They were so adamant about those things that everyone said, man, if only I was as holy as a Pharisee. And have you ever heard a Pharisee pray? Man, they let you know that they pray really, really well because they practice it. They go out into the streets and they shout out their prayers. When they fast, have you ever seen a Pharisee fast? Man, they look so depressed. They're like, they're agonizing. They have all kinds of dust and all these things over. Everyone wanted to be a Pharisee. But Jesus says, so... Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means get into the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever wanted to be more disciplined in your life? Have you ever wanted to exercise and you just can't seem 
to do what you want to do. Every January, I'm thinking, this is the year. I'm going to train every single day. I'm going to win climbing competitions. It's going to be awesome. And then the week goes by, you're thinking, tomorrow. Totally going to do it tomorrow. And then you hit your snooze button. You're like, ah. You just always push it back, right? But you have this idea of what the ultimate Alan could be. Maybe not you. You'd have the ultimate whatever you are, right? You have your ideal person in mind that always exercises, is always disciplined. And then you also see those people in your life that you know are just like that. They, they're, they're the people that get up at, at um, 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, They have no problem skipping meals. They have no problem going out and running, whatever it is. And you look at those people and like, if only I was disciplined like that. That's kind of like what a Pharisee was morally to the people of those days. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that should be a cause for a little bit of shock and despair, right? How in the world could anyone exceed the righteousness of a scribe and Pharisee? Well, here's the thing that they didn't say. The problem was that the Pharisees focused on an outward display of regulations and ignored the inward heart change, the character that needed to be developed inside. The Pharisees were so concerned about how they looked on the outside and were not focused at all on what really needed to take place inside of the heart. But you don't know what that's like, right? You have no idea what it's like to act like you have it all together, but really inside everything's falling apart. Nobody knows what that's like here, right? This is the problem with the Pharisees. And Jesus says, actually, by adding all these laws, you make it seem like you're doing well. You make it seem like you're fulfilling the commandments, but really, inside is falling apart. I started making these uh, fruit smoothies because I got an awesome blender. I love them. Talk about it all the time. Put my Instagram when I can, when it looks really good. And if you want to make your smoothie really good, a secret ingredient is a date. Not like going out on a date. That's a different kind of secret ingredient. But like the fruit, you know? If you take these sweet mini fruits that are dried and pitted, because if they're not pitted, they're like really, really hard and they'll mess up your blender. You put them in and it makes it really sweet. Even if the fruit's not really fresh, that's a secret tip, that's free. But here's the problem. So this might freak you out. It freaked me out, so really sorry, but this is really important. I want everyone to be safe out there. So I found out by going on the blog that sometimes the pitted dates on the inside or just dates in general, because they're so sweet, sometimes there'll be like little maggots, flies, things on the inside that you won't even know because you throw them in the blender. <laughs> yeah, so... Listen, all I'm going to say is it freaked me out. I didn't even want to eat dates. I didn't care if my fruit, fruit smoothie was never sweet ever again. I didn't want to eat them after that, right? I'm sorry. It's true. Now, I will say I only found one tiny little fly, and it wasn't that big of a deal to be honest, but it still freaked me out because I was thinking how many other things have I eaten without noticing it. So all you have to do, all you have to do, okay, it's just open inside. That's it. And then you can throw it in and it's fine. But I'm like super, super scared now. 
The point being that I freaked you out. No questions, no questions. <laughs> Take questions afterwards. The point being that everything can look and taste good. Everything can look good on the outside, but inside you got maggots. So that illustration will stick with you forever, and you probably missed the point. I'm going to quote a verse now. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says this. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Because here's the point. No amount of regulations can change the inside. No, no amount of things you do outwardly can change your heart. The law, its whole purpose is to show us that something is wrong inside. It's a mirror to show us what's wrong. It's like opening up inside of that date or that fig or whatever and seeing that there's problems inside. So here's the good news. Since Christ has fulfilled the law, that's what he says. Jesus came not to destroy, not get rid of the law and say, eh, it doesn't really matter anymore. Eh, I forgot about it. But Jesus came to fulfill the law by, to, by doing what we could never do, by living how we could never live. He is the fulfillment of the law, and through his Holy Spirit, we can also fulfill the law. This is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, we have the ability to, in the likeness of Jesus, go and fulfill the law that is laid out for us. Because if you're honest, I mean, sometimes you look at sin and you're like, man, I understand that I do terrible things. Is it possible for me to sin less and less? Is it possible for me to actually become more like Jesus? And the answer is yes. Through the power of his Holy Spirit, we have the ability to also go and have that law fulfilled. But it has to be God who does that work in your heart. That's not something that you and I can do. None of us can change our hearts from the inside out. We can decide how to position it, but we can't decide what to do with it. We can't decide whether or not we're good or bad people. This is why the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 11 that God says, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statues and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is a work that God has to do inside of you. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit working inside of your heart, guess what? You're always gonna be depressed because you are unable to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's commands. Church will be more and more unappetizing to you because and whenever you come, you just feel terrible. Like, wow, another thing I've done wrong. Another thing I don't want to hear. But through the power of God's Holy Spirit, we come here and say, man, I am a terrible person, but this is actually possible to live out through God's Holy Spirit, number one. And number two, even if I don't walk perfectly, God has forgiven me. Man, because God has already fulfilled that righteous requirement for me. It's amazing. So here's our first point for the evening. Because many of us won't take sin seriously. Many of us are just like, eh, does it really matter if I change these things about my life? Your first point is this. God takes sin so seriously that only he can fix it. 
Have you thought about that? There are some things that only God can fix himself. Now, you and I, if we have the right tools, the right amount of intelligence, knowledge, we can probably fix a lot of things. Even if your computer blows up, you have all kinds of problems, relational issues, there are some things that we can fix. Because you just put enough people together, have the right resources, right amount of money, probably fix it. But there's one thing that no human being can ever fix, and that is the problem of sin. There's a problem of the heart. That's only something that God, God, that God can do for us. Now, this is the problem of the Galatian church. The book of Galatians is a letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to this church. And they were going through this time where they were saying, well, people are getting saved, which is great, but how much of the law are we supposed to keep? How much of God's commandments are we supposed to do? And so they were trying to make them Jewish. And so they were trying to have them practice all different kinds of things by abstaining by, from certain foods, from practicing circumcision, which is not so fun. And so Paul's writing this letter to them saying, hold on, you're missing it. It's not about the rituals anymore. It's about what God has done. Listen, if you're trying to be righteous by fulfilling the law, you've missed the whole point. He writes this, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Okay, so we're mature here. We can talk about this. What Paul is saying is, if you are trying to make yourself a good person by the things that you do, then Christ is of absolutely no value to you. So check this out. If it's the case that you never did another good work again in your life, but you truly believed on Jesus Christ, he would still forgive you for each and every sin. That's how good God is. That's how merciful, how vast his grace is. That he does not require any good deeds from us in order for his love to cover our sins. There's nothing we can do. There's absolutely no amount of works where God says, ah, now you've proved yourself. All right, here's my grace. Awesome. But God has given us this free gift. Now, when we actually have that free gift and we recognize what a powerful thing that is, it causes us to act in a way that pleases him. It causes us to actually do better than if we were under this yoke of the law. If we were under bondage, if we were under the chains of the law, of, don't mess up. That's what you grow up with, right? Be a good kid, be a gentleman, be a lady, be a person that loves God, follow the Lord, don't fall off track. You're told all these different things, right? These commandments, and people have expectations of who you're supposed to be. But ultimately, what you need to know is God's expectations of you were fulfilled in Jesus' life. So we look to him. And when our life is hidden in Christ, here's the thing. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and gave himself for me. That's the confidence we can have. It's, it's this weird exchange of, really? I do nothing to deserve 
God's grace his favor? And the answer is no. You don't have to do anything. But Jesus, because of his love, has died for you and has given you this life. And now it's possible to do what pleases God. Nobody wants to sin. Nobody wants to, those that are putting their trust in God, they don't want to displease him. They don't want to live in a way that, that is in opposition to his, to his laws, his commands. So we get to live in this kind of freedom. And we can stop beating ourselves up. That's what communion's all about. We come together and we remind ourselves that as we take his body that was broken for us, the bread, right? As we take that, we're reminding ourselves that he was beaten so we don't have to beat ourselves up. That his blood was shed so that there's nothing else that God requires of us. He asks us to put our faith in him. But there's no amount of good works because his blood covers each and every sin. So we begin a new section in verses 21 through 26, but it continues on from there in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus starts saying um, specific things that address people's heart issues. Six times, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it was said because of their tradition, because of the Pharisees and their laws. And then he says, but I say to you. Now, no rabbi would talk like this, okay? No religious teacher would say, um, I know the Bible says this. I know that your religious leaders say this. This is what I say. No one would dare say that, even if they were going against a certain rabbi. But Jesus spoke in his own authority. So here, we're going to see our second point in verses 21 through 22. Our second point is that we must take unrighteous anger seriously. We must take unrighteous anger seriously. So Jesus says, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So he starts with the problem of the heart, and that's anger. That's malice, these gross sins inside of our heart, and says, hey, listen, you think that you're a good person because you've never murdered anybody. This is what happens, too. If we're justifying ourselves by our works and not by God's grace, when we read the Bible, we pat ourselves on the back. Man, I'm doing pretty good today. We read the Bible, we do our devotions, and say, yeah, I do pray three times a day. I do fast. Yep. I'm, yeah, I got everything in a row. And that's not the purpose of reading the word of God, by the way. But this is what the Pharisees did. They said, ah, yes, I've kept all of these, these commandments from my youth. I've never murdered anybody. And that's a pretty easy one. I think for the most part, most of us have not murdered people before. But Jesus says, you think that you're doing good because you haven't murdered anybody. What about the anger inside of your heart? Now, what he's not saying is that anger is just as bad as murder. Hatred is just as bad as murder. He's not saying that, okay? Some people say that. That's not what he's saying. Because at that point, imagine you, the, um, going to court, and then somebody's brought before their trial and said, have you ever hated somebody? Yeah, I've hated people. All oh, right, we got a death penalty for you. Yeah, because hate's just as bad as murder. That's what the Bible says. No, that's not what he's saying. He says it starts in the heart. People don't just randomly murder people. There's hatred that builds up inside of your heart, Okay? So he says three things. He addresses anger, this word raka, and then says, you fool. 
First, we have anger without a cause, okay? He doesn't say anger in general. He says anger that is without any justification. In the Bible, there are other verses that back up this idea that it's okay to be angry in some situations. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. The two are separate. You can be angry and not sinning. Do not let the sun go down, down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through 27 says. So anger in and of itself may not be wrong. So what are some of the justifications for anger? What are some proper motives or proper causes for anger? Well, I can think of one example. If somebody bullied your younger brother or younger sister, I think it's okay for you to be angry. If somebody, if your younger brother, younger sister came home and they're crying because they got beat up or whatever, it would be righteous for you to be angry, right? In fact, I think something would be wrong with you if you said, you know what, the Bible says not to be angry. I have no feelings toward this. Everything is okay. So there's something right about that. Um, I think oftentimes, though, if we're honest, our anger is not justified and it's not righteous. So let's look at the Bible and ask ourselves, can we think of a time when Jesus was angry? A time when Jesus himself was angry. I think about when Jesus was in the temple, and the Bible says in John chapter 2 that he made a whip of cords, and he drove out the Pharisees, the money changers, out of the temple. There were two different times that Jesus drove people out of the temple. One was when people were being cheated out of their money and saying, ah, you know what, I like your lamb, but it's really not God-quality lamb, so we really, you got to you got to give us that lamb, and you can buy our lambs for a higher price. But listen, God will accept your sacrifice. So there's corruption, but another time, it was just simply distraction. It was putting things in the temple of God that would remove people's attention from God himself. So those are the two times that God got angry. Corruption in God's temple and distraction in God's temple. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it really God's temple that Jesus was concerned about? Was he really like, oh, man, the church building is a really important place. I can't believe that you guys are on your cell phones during church. Ah, oh, look at you people. You're to be able to. I really don't think that's Jesus' point, okay? Maybe youth leaders get mad at you. I don't think Jesus would be that mad, to be honest. What makes Jesus really upset is the fact that the temple was symbolic of what? Us, the church the body of Christ. I think if you look at scripture, what makes God upset is when, just like we have our little brothers and sisters bullied and it makes us angry, when God's people are persecuted, when God's people are mistreated, that, that makes anger rise up in the heart of God. That we are God's temple. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have had from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is a message in and of itself, isn't it? So many of us, we could care less about ourselves because we feel like we're worthless. We could care less about what we do with our body, what we do with our soul, and we exchange so many things for it. Like the Bible says, 
What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The point is that people don't see the value in what God has given to them. That each and every person here is valuable and precious in the sight of God. The Bible says that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. God says, what, what kind of house are you going to build for me? I own the whole universe. But it also says that he will dwell inside of our hearts. That the universe can't contain God, but he's chosen to live inside of you. If we have that kind of mentality, won't it keep us from filling our hearts with the wrong things, from filling ourselves up with things that are not of the Lord? So we should be protective of the thing that God has given us. Now, the other things he addresses is this word raka, which just basically means empty head, like your head's full of nothing. Um, and then he talks about if you say you fool, you'll be in danger of hellfire. Does he actually mean if you call a person a fool that you're going to hell? No, that's not what he means, okay? Because some of you are thinking, I mean, there's always a couple kids that are just terrified when they hear that. I'm like, oh, I'm going to hell now because I've definitely said the word fool before. I said it like a couple times already just reading the verse. That's not what he's saying. The idea is contempt in your heart for somebody else. To look at somebody else and say, that person is worthless. To look at somebody here in, in the youth group and to be like, ah, I'm going to be friends with that person, but that person, eh, I could really care less. I could care less about that person. If you have hatred inside of your heart, contempt for somebody else that God has made precious in his sight, listen, we got to be careful that that doesn't build up inside of our heart. Now, here's a good question. What about being angry when somebody bullies you? Is that okay? If somebody is mistreating you, making fun of you, calls you a fool, calls you worthless, is it okay for you to have a righteous anger for yourself and say, you know what? No, I just, I'm made precious in the sight of God. You should totally respect me. No. Actually, I think the Bible says that vengeance is God's that we are to look, when we are afflicted, when we're persecuted, to not take it back in our own hands. We're going to look at that later when he talks about uh, turning the other cheek instead of an eye for an eye and, and a tooth for a tooth. We're going to see how the Bible talks about not retaliating on your own accord, okay? But here's the other thing. What was Jesus' attitude when he went to the cross, when people were persecuting him? Was it anger? When people were beating him, ripping out his beard, putting on a crown of thorns, was Jesus angry at the people that were beating him up? No, instead he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think what will help us remove anger whenever we're mistreated is when we have compassion on the person who's hurting us. When we see this person as precious in the sight of God, that they're missing out on God's plan and his purposes when sin has ruined their life, that would have compassion on them and keep us from being angry with our brother or sister. Here's the last thing. We're going to close with this too. It's in verses 23 through 26, and that's to take reconciliation seriously. So we have three points for this evening, that God takes sin so seriously that only he can fix it. Secondly, we talked about we must take unrighteous anger seriously. And thirdly, we must take reconciliation seriously. So he talks about in the latter verses, verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. 
First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. And the judge, the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown in prison. Surely I say to you, you'll be, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So here's a really weird concept, right? What he's saying here is, if you're on your way to church or the temple, in those days it was, it was the temple, and you have a gift, you have a sacrifice to bring to God. Like, yep, I'm going to bring my tithe or whatever it was, just in your, own, in your own context. He says, but you know, in your heart of hearts, you did something wrong to somebody else, leave your gift at the altar and go make it right with somebody and then come back and take your gift again. Now, that in and of itself can be one of the most convicting verses in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because most of the time when we have unresolved conflict, we just run away. Or we just pray the other person doesn't come back to church. Like, oh, I know I hurt that person, but as long as, ah, I just don't want to see them ever again. We run away when we have conflict. Or when we know that we hurt somebody, we stop calling them, we block their number, we unfollow them on Instagram. We do things to avoid the fact that we've caused harm in somebody else's life and hope that it just goes away. Maybe you've heard of this before, but there's something called the Conscience Fund. The Conscience Fund. It was established in 1811. I think that's the correct date, actually. It was officially um, instated in the 1950s. And basically what happened is there was a guy who felt so bad that he mistreated somebody else that instead of paying back the person because that was way too embarrassing, he just gave money to the government saying, I'm so sorry, I did something wrong, and they gave it anonymously. And ever since then, the United States government has had this conscience fund that if you felt bad about anything, you could give the government money anonymously to help almost like pay back your sin, especially if you couldn't. Maybe the person died, you lost contact with the person, you could give money to this fund. Now, the largest donation to the conscience fund was $155,000 in 1990. Can you imagine feeling so guilty that you robbed somebody of that much money? And the government doesn't track these people either. Interesting to note, according to businessinsider.com, when they did an article on this last year, the fund received less and less money over time. That had $1.1 million in donations in 2014. In 2016, it just went to $23,000. And last year, there was only $1,600 in the conscious fund halfway through the year. Isn't that crazy? People are feeling less and less aware of the fact that they're offending people. I think that's what it is. You could have your own theory. I think people are more and more unwilling to deal with offenses they've committed against somebody else. But we as Christians, we should be the first people, we should be the best people at repenting, at making things right. So listen, if that's you tonight, I really believe this. There's people here in this room for sure. You've done something wrong to somebody else and you never fixed it. Now you're covered by God's grace. You're covered by his love for sure. But shouldn't you still go out and make it right with that other person? What about the sake of the person that you've offended? Should we not, as the Bible says, as much as it depends on you to live peaceably with everyone? I think so. Instead of running away, we should go to embrace reconciliation because that's God's heart. So listen, if you have an outstanding offense, God would say to you tonight, according to his word, that we are, now that you're in this time of worship, to go and make it right with that person and then resume worship with him. So in conclusion, 
What is the sin that you have yet to deal with? What is the thing that you have left unresolved? Now, I know, like, I remember Andy, I should have, okay, doesn't matter. I remember Andy saying to me years ago, when he was still starting out as a youth pastor, he said, man, have you ever seen the things they put on MySpace? As if, like, you know what that is, right? Um, Social media profiles back in the day when I was in high school. Man, have you seen their MySpaces and all the things they put online? It's terrible. I just think, like, we should have, like, a prayer night, and I should put up their MySpace profiles or, like, print them out, and when they come up and they're, like, crying and stuff, I'll show them. Like, (laughs) you got to make this right, you know? (laughs) I'm going to edit that out later. But I was like, that seems really harsh, you know? But here's the point. Like, I'm not stupid. I hear about the things that you guys do. Does it make me think less of you? No. Like, I still love you. I was a stupid kid. I did a lot of terrible things when I was in high school. I had a lot of weird thoughts and said, you know what? Maybe this isn't bad. I'm going to go and do that. And I look back at it now and say, why did I do that? I remember as a youth leader posting a video for my, um, I did video blogs for my band when I was in a band. Maybe I shared this story before. And I gave, me and my friends were having a joke together that wasn't really the best representation of Christian jokes. And we put it online on YouTube and like a whole bunch of students follow us and stuff, but it's mainly because I have all kinds of different audiences. And all Andy had to say to me, I came to youth group that night, helping out with the junior high. And he comes up to me and says, so that video that you posted, you think that was a good idea? And I went, no, no, it's, it's, you wanna take it down? Yeah, I'll take it down. And I felt terrible. I felt terrible for a month. Like, how could I even call myself a Christian or a youth leader? I'd stumble so many people I'd put in this video. So I did stupid things, okay? My point is not to condemn you. My point is not to point out all of your sins. I'm just saying that if you yourself know there are things that are hindering your worship of God, your fellowship with his uh, brothers and his children, because God doesn't have brothers. I guess Jesus does. If there are things that are hindering your fellowship with other Christians and your worship of God, why not make it right? If we are saved by his grace, why not remove every bit of hindrance from you running your race at full capacity? That's why I'm asking tonight. Maybe there's certain addictions that you gotta put aside. Maybe there's a certain lifestyle they have to put aside. Maybe there's certain things that are just bad habits. And you're like, all right, it's about time that I just laid this down. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to help you, not condemn you and tell you that you're a terrible person because you sin. We all sin, you know, that's the point. So. That being said, let's pray.